Welcome to the Platinum Trust Quarterly Report audio update for the December 2018 quarter. Please visit the website platinum.com.au and look under terms and conditions for all the disclaimers relevant to this broadcast. In this episode, we provide Andrew Clifford's macro overview and then look at one or two stock, regional and sector comments from a combination of Joe Lai, Scott Gilchrist, Clay Smolinski. And then we go into more detail on Eastern Europe, which is a feature piece written by Platinum European Portfolio Manager Nick Dvornak. Please also read the report for fuller details on the all of our funds in the range and to learn about Australasia's best sporting team, an award that we presented in conjunction with Gainline Analytics to the Canterbury Crusaders, who we determined to be the most successful sporting franchise in Australia and New Zealand over the last 25 years. So in this quarter's review of the macro environment, Andrew Clifford really looks back at 2018 and then forward to the prospects for 2019. So if we go back a year, as we enter 2018, the prospects of the global economy were probably as bright as they'd been since the onset of the GFC. The US economy was growing from strength to strength with tax cuts on the way. China had recovered well from its investment slump over the 2014-15 period, and economic momentum was building in Europe and Japan. There were risks on the horizon. Many stem from rising US interest rates. There's a concern about how the increased fiscal deficit would impact on the US bond market. Further out, there was concern about how central banks might extricate themselves from QE. And there was Trump's threat of a trade war and politically inspired skirmishes like Brexit. But under the radar of most Western media and commentators were the developments of China's financial reform. The reform essentially aimed to bring the shadow banking activities back onto the balance sheets of banks, really to tighten up on speculative use of credit outside the regulated banking environment. We saw this as good policy, but we did highlight in our March 2018 report that this reform process could give risk to tighten credit availability potentially impacting on the economy. However, our base case at the time was that China's robust growing economy could absorb and cope with any impact reasonably well. This turned out to be too optimistic. The Chinese economy progressively slowed throughout 2018, exacerbated by the commencement of President Trump's trade war in July. And while the impact of tariffs imposed to date has been relatively minor, they've certainly damaged business confidence and resulted in cutbacks in investment spending, particularly in China's manufacturing sector. The slowdowns continued throughout the latter months of the year, and this is evidenced in car sales, mobile phone volumes and PMI surveys. But the impacts of China's slowdown have been felt far beyond its borders. While China is, about the, well, China is the second largest economy in the world today, it's for most goods the world's largest market, whether it's commodities, raw materials, things like iron ore and copper, many manufactured goods like cars, smartphones, running shoes. In fact, it'd be difficult to think of a physical good for which China is not the biggest consumer in volume terms. So this slowdown has been felt globally and a significant factor in a loss of economic momentum in Europe and Japan and many emerging economies. The only place that so far appeared immune is the US, which was growing faster to start with, but also had the benefit of a fortuitously timed fiscal stimulus in the form of tax cuts. So that was 2018, but if we look forward to 2019, combination of reasons for caution and optimism and if we start with the caution I think China's loss of momentum and the trade war continue to cause a significant deal of uncertainty. Many companies 
entered last year with strong order books and we've got a kind of combination of double ordering components or ordering ahead of demand at that point and then a slowing down and cutting back on new orders coupled with the trade war distorting uh, purchasing decisions has really created a significant amount of noise in sales outcomes and it may well be sometime into 2019 before we have a clear sense of where demand has settled for many goods and we're yet to see whether or not China and the US negotiate a trade compromise prior to the 1st of March deadline. Absent an agreement, I think US tariffs on a further $200 billion will take effect on Chinese goods. But the greatest risk facing the global economy is that the last driver of growth, the US, is now poised to slow. Housing and auto sales have fallen in response to higher interest rates. Tax cut benefits have been expressed. The impact on tariffs on business is now being felt. This, coupled with broader trade tension, have started to affect confidence. And the political environment post the midterm elections could also be a further drain on confidence. The partial shutdown of the US government over funding debates might be a prelude of what is to come. President Trump's infrastructure programme could potentially be a boost to growth, but unlikely to have much impact within the next 12 months, even if it did eventuate. And as for interest rates, while the Fed has signalled it will slow the pace of hikes, cuts appear distant prospects. Simply put, the conditions are in place for a progressively slower US environment throughout the following year. An important lesson in recent years has been that maturing Chinese economy has become more responsive to domestic interest rate movements and credit conditions. And absent a more flexible exchange rate mechanism, we think China will likely remain susceptible to many booms and busts. But another lesson specifically from 2018 was how important China has become to the global economy. For the last 30 years or more, the US economy and markets have been at the centre of everyone's analysis. It's long become a cliché to say that when the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. In 2018, the US economy is in great shape, but the rest of the world slowed because of China. But there are reasons for optimism. and If we apply these lessons to the year ahead, it's important to note that in order to alleviate the stress the financial reform has placed on the system, China has taken a number of important developments which amount to a loosening of policy, whether it's freeing up lending capacity at the banks to tax cuts and a host of other measures. Now, if China's economy slowed in response to a tightening of credit conditions, one should also expect to see activity gradually pick up as this loosening takes effect. There will be debates about whether enough has been done and how long before the economy responds, but policy is clearly moving in a direction to at least gently encourage growth which will take some time to show up in the data, but the uh, green shoots may be observed in areas like construction equipment sales. Other positives that might unfold are a resolution to the trade conflict between the US and China. And while we discussed this in the last quarterly report that we believed there were significant incentives for both sides to find a compromise, we'll probably be entertained by a made-for-TV style drama as the 1st of March deadline approaches. So we observed in last quarter's overview, the slowdown in China, the uncertainty around trade and rising interest rates in the US had resulted in falling stock prices across many sectors sensitive to economic growth or exposed to trade issues. On the other hand, companies perceived to be immune were those that performed strongly. Good performers were found primarily around high growth sectors such as software, e-commerce and biotech. But these were either at or approaching valuations exceedingly high by historical standards. Through the first nine months of the year, the performance of these sectors accounted for much of the differential between the US market continuing to reach new highs 
than the world's major markets, other major markets, which had been in steady decline since February. But in the last quarter, in response to higher interest rates and tightening liquidity, this pattern changed and the US sold off in line with, or even more fiercely than other major markets, and were led by the highly valued biotech and tech names. Recently, Bloomberg recorded an interview with Stan Druckermiller, successful hedge fund manager, and of particular interest was his observation that the signals he's relied on over the last 40-odd years to make calls on markets are no longer working, particularly around interest rate behaviour. Perhaps this is part of the phenomenon of active managers struggling to outperform in what many have described as the death of value investing. Various reasons have been offered for the ideas that markets aren't behaving as people expect. The top of the list is the impact of QE and low interest rates. Off-cited for recent market anomalies is the rise of machines, whether it's algorithms or comp-based strategies. But furthermore, the rise of populist governments around the world has apparently increased political risk. Accumulation of high level of debts may also be playing a role, but it's hardly new. Or it may simply be China's having a greater influence on the global economy than ever before. So we could broadly agree with the claim that markets are not behaving as one expects, but the reality is markets often don't behave in line with expectations, and the patterns that investors think they see are often only temporary. So how should we navigate our way through this environment? There are two key principles that underpin Platinum's investment approach. Firstly, the belief that the best opportunities are found by looking in out-of-favour areas and avoiding the popular ones. And secondly, the price we pay for a company is the single most crucial determinant of its return that we will earn on the investment. Guided by these core principles, we can observe that investor sentiment has deteriorated significantly over the last quarter. For example, North Asian domestic investors are generally very negatively disposed towards their own markets, and investors are quite fearful of certain sectors like autos, semiconductors and commodities, perceived to be more prone to the cyclicality of economic activity. But it's these great periods of great uncertainty that one should be looking for opportunities to buy. Our sense is that markets may not have quite bottomed yet, but at turbulent times like these, we will fall back to an assessment of potential returns implied by valuation of our holdings. Simply put, we can consider the earnings or cash flow yields that our companies will provide investors with over the next five years and beyond. And while there's no certainty regarding these earnings, the valuations across the out-of-favour sectors are highly attractive today. Attractive valuations are not a guarantee that stock prices will not fall further over the short term, but the expected returns from an investment are not just a concept. Cash flow returns flow to investors' pockets, whether through earnings passed on to the shareholders in the form of dividends or stock buybacks or reinvestments into uh, growth, or at the right price, knowledgeable buyers might appear and buy out companies from shareholders. Based on our assessment of the current valuations across the companies we own, we believe our portfolio offers high prospects of favourable returns. What's less clear is the time frame over which these returns will be realised, given the numerous challenges facing the markets today. So just going into a little bit more detail on, on these uh, loosening measures in China from, uh, from Joe Lai's piece on, on the Asia Fund, and what Joe points out is that Chinese authorities have realised they had inadvertently over-tightened credit conditions and are now actively putting in loosening measures. For example, the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, China's central bank, cut reserve requirement ratios for banks four times in 2018 and again in January 19 to free up liquidity in the banking system. By October, the one-month Shanghai Interbank offered rate, the Shibor, 
had dropped to 2.7% from 4.7% at the start of the year. The PBOC has also taken steps to encourage lending to private enterprises, including setting numerical targets as well as accepting additional debt to small and medium businesses as collateral when funding commercial banks. With greater funding being secured for approved projects, infrastructure spending has once again returned to positive growth after falling to negative territory in August. The Chinese government is also seeking to boost growth by lowering the tax burden for businesses and households, income tax cuts and reduction in value-added tax, VAT, similar to RGST. These have all been announced and estimated to exceed 1% of GDP. Government policy on the property market is also beginning to ease. Some regional government measures were so tight that families were only allowed to purchase one apartment, which must be owner-occupied, and they were prohibited from resale within three years. We're now beginning to see some municipal governments gradually loosening these restrictions. Chinese authorities have been very clear that their intention is to reverse the over-tightening caused by the credit reform efforts, not to massively stimulate growth, and that it would avoid piling on huge amounts of debt in the process. The policy easing will likely have a stabilising effect on China's domestic economy. While it's early days to assess the impact, we've seen some anecdotal evidence of improving activity, such as a pickup in construction machinery sales and utilisation rates towards the end of the year. What's more, the Chinese economy is still growing in excess of 6% in real terms, despite the recent slowdown. Its banking system has cleaned up much of the off-balance sheet speculative lending and should be more resilient as a result. China's debt-to-GDP ratio has stopped growing for almost two years. The long-term fundamental drivers propelling the region's growth remain present. Investment in education and technology, and entrepreneurs exploiting new business opportunities. So that's from Joe. But interestingly, we look across to Japan, a market that tends to be avoided by many. Valuation hasn't been good protection from market declines. Many stocks there of seemingly good value got cheaper throughout the year. It's just worth a brief comment from Scott Gilchrist on what's happening in that market. We view the following as defining aspects of the Japanese stock market for the next five years. Firstly, the 30th anniversary of the 1989 stock market bubble is coming up. This multi-decade bear market that ensued, the burst of the bubble, has been one of the longest in modern financial market history. Secondly, valuation dispersion across the Japanese stock market is at historical highs. Market participants have shunned any company exposed to cyclical growth or any type of uncertainty. Thirdly, absolute valuations for a wide range of high-quality businesses are at or approaching the low end of their multi-decade trading range. And fourth and finally, the external economic environment is still an important factor due to Japan's wide-ranging interactions with global trading partners, particularly in Asia. The latter attributes, particularly the absolute valuations and the dependence on the external environment, also apply to Korea. And this highlights the low valuations evident across North Asian stock markets these effectively being Asia, sorry, Korea, Japan and China today. Now, looking on a sector basis, Clay Smolinski in his unhedged fund report touches on energy and the swift 36% fall in the oil price since October has adversely affected all of our oil-exposed businesses. But the worst affected were our offshore oil service companies like Technip FMC, seeing sharp declines in their stock prices. One of our investment themes since 2015 is centred around a recovering oil price and our strategy included owning a mix of oil producers and oil service companies. In the early stage of the recovery, our holdings were skewed to oil producers 
who would be the first to benefit from higher oil prices, while more recently our positioning has shifted towards oil service providers. The oil service industry has been very depressed, with industry capex having been cut 50% from the previous peak. But we do expect these companies to benefit from higher levels of investment going forward as oil producers need to replace their depleted reserves. With the oil price now having fallen back below 50 US dollars and the industry again in oversupply, a rebound in oil industry capex might feel like a very distant prospect. Why then do we remain confident the rebound will come? The key is in the decline rate. Globally, the world produces and consumes around 100 million barrels of oil per day. This output has a natural decline rate of 4 or 5% a year, driven by the fact that mature fields deplete over time. Global oil demand over the past six years has grown by approximately 1 million barrels a day. The demand growth and the natural decline rate together mean the oil industry at a minimum needs to develop new production capacity of 5 million barrels a day to not fall into deficit. Over the past four years, the vast majority of this has come from legacy projects coming online, Canadian oil sands, Brazilian subsalt, US Gulf of Mexico, that had been commissioned prior to the oil downturn. Over the period, US shale oil output has also grown, but it's worth remembering annual shale output has never grown by more than 1.1 million barrels a day. And given the economics of shale operators, as well as geological constraints, it's hard to see shale output grow by more than 1.5 million without the inducement of oil being priced well above $60. With a pipeline of legacy products projects soon coming to an end and shale only able to incrementally add 1 to 1.5 million barrels of oil a day, the question is where will the other 4 million replacement barrels come from? We think a large amount needs to come from offshore oil developments. Indeed, 60% of non-OPEC reserves sits in offshore basins. Like the shale industry, offshore oil service providers like Technique FMC have re-engineered the technology to lower the cost of offshore developments to the point where a large number of offshore projects are now able to generate a 10% return on investment at an oil price level of 50 to 60 US dollars a barrel, economics equal or superior to shale. So while our holdings in offshore oil companies have recently hurt returns, we remain optimistic about their medium to long-term prospects. The current level of industry capex is unsustainable and should rise. And with holdings being on modest PE ratios as low as four to seven times in a modest recovery scenario, these investments should provide us with good returns in the long run. And looking at individual investments, it's worth you know, remembering that what we do at Platinum is we're really buying stocks that are out of favour. While the macro environment provides a de- backdrop, it's stock picking that is the core skill. And really just to give you some illustrations of some of the stocks that we've been buying, Joe Lai in the Asia Fund touches on a couple of recent purchases. One of them, Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited, is the operator of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and the Hong Kong Futures Exchange, which has seen its share price suffer over the last year in a bear market. However, in our view, the company continues to have a distinct structural growth trajectory as an important conduit for China's capital markets. As China gradually opens up its financial markets, whether equities, bonds, commodities or currency, to foreign investors, the stock and future exchanges of Hong Kong should see their securities and derivatives trading values, volumes, expand enormously over the long term, 
The recent market turbulence gave us an opportunity to buy this monopoly business on its trough valuation. Joe also highlights a purchase in Sani Heavy Industry, a company which is China's champion in construction equipment manufacturing and a leading example of Chinese companies successfully climbing the technology ladder. It specialises in making high-quality excavators, cranes and concrete machinery. Its value-for-money proposition has enabled it to gain significant domestic market share. As Chinese authorities once again turn to infrastructure projects as a stimulatory measure to counter slowing economic growth, we think SANI will benefit. But in the international and hedge funds, we've been buying General Electric, one of the original components of the Dow Index in, back in 1896. General Electric was added to the portfolio during the quarter. The company's had an extraordinary fall from grace over the last two decades as a result of poor management and some disastrous acquisitions. Today it finds itself in a financially compromised position with an over-leveraged balance sheet. However, GE has two core business units that are very high quality and are growing, aerospace and healthcare. And it also has good operations in power gen, oil services and a range of other businesses. Though which currently tend to be cyclically depressed, with some also dealing with other issues. The company's had significant change at the board level and a new CEO in Lawrence Culp, who previously ran the highly successful Danaher Corporation as CEO and president from 2001 to 14. GE's stock price has collapsed and it's now down nearly 80% from its highs in 2016 in the face of concerns that the company may need to raise significant equity to bolster its balance sheet. Even if this is the case, we think GE's current price represents a good entry point and we've taken an initial position. One should note, however, given the magnitude of the issues that GE faces in some of its business divisions, we expect the resolution of the company's problems to take some time. Nick Dvornak has written a piece called Eastern Europe, New Markets in the Old Continent. He spent a week travelling in Eastern Europe in November, first trip to a region we'd not followed closely in the past and met a range of companies finding interesting potential investments, particularly among businesses serving local consumers like banks, airlines and retailers, but also oil refiners and hydroelectric power producers. As relative newcomers, our approach is cautious and positions will initially be small as we take time to build our understanding of this part of the world. But we wanted to share with you the, uh, the development in the region over the last 30 years. Following the end of the Cold War, the so-called Eastern Bloc countries worked to adopt Western systems of government and economic management throughout the 90s. This was no simple matter. Industrialization and economic organization under communism had not evolved organically. Industrial development was an artificial construct directed by bureaucrats, piecemeal in nature and poorly integrated with the local economy, never mind with global markets. Much of the labor and capital engaged in these uncompetitive endeavors needed to be redeployed. Such transitions entailed considerable confusion, economic turmoil, social upheaval, and there was a high risk the process would derail any given country. For investors, this is not a bad thing, as high uncertainty, combined with potential for rapid growth, can lead to an abundance of attractive investment opportunities. But these were scarce in Eastern Europe, particularly as Western European investors and companies saw these newly opened up economies as their backyard. They were familiar with the region, they closely tracked the transition, and scoured them for opportunities. So instances of true neglect, like we'd seen in Southeast Asia following the financial crisis there, or periodically in India, Korea and China, were rare and short-lived. 
There was tremendous political will to achieve a successful transition on the part of both Western European governments and the ordinary citizens of Eastern Europe. So no one really lost sight of this and the mood of long-term optimism was rarely shaken. Another complication was that as successful transition began to look increasingly likely, domestic economic actors became ever more optimistic. Consumers began to extrapolate income growth, expecting themselves to converge with those of Western Europe. Household spending increasingly reflected this aspirational level of income rather than actual earnings, and households borrowed to live beyond their means, with Western European banks only too happy to provide the funds. This would ultimately result in significant indebtedness an erosion of competitiveness and very similar to what we observed in Asia in the lead-up to their 97-98 crisis. These vulnerabilities were laid bare by the global financial crisis and then the European sovereign debt crisis in 2012. These severely restricted credit availability, forcing households to make a major adjustment to spending to match their income. Businesses adjusted to lower levels of activity. They cut staff, they cut hours, they cut wages. The public sector had to resort to pay and pension cuts. Competitiveness was restored, imbalances righted the old-fashioned way, via the market mechanism. The recessions were typically severe, given the imbalances had been so large. Hungary is a more extreme case. Domestic demand contracted by 9% in 2009, while GDP contracted by 7.5%. Unemployment reached 11%. Property prices fell 25%. The current account deficit fell from 7% to 1% of GDP in one year alone. Allowing markets to adjust is painful, but undeniably effective. Hungary is an extreme, but it's illustrative of what happened in the region more broadly. And today, Hungary is a fiercely competitive economy, as evidenced by the following. Firstly, Hungary's current account sung from a 7% deficit in 08 to a 6% surplus by 2017, driven by export strength. Secondly, direct foreign investment grew from a peak of 4 billion in 2008 to a new peak of 8 billion in 2017, indicative of the appetite among Western European businesses to relocate capacity to Hungary. And thirdly, the proportion of working age people participating in the labour force grew from 54% in 2008 to 62% in 2017. Despite this increase in labour supply, unemployment fell or even halved between 2008 and 17. Participation among 60 to 74-year-olds has tripled over the period and they now make up almost 10% of the workforce. This just illustrates how strong demand for Hungarian workers is in the global economy. The other big change during 2008 to 13 was a dramatic reduction in indebtedness across the region. Again, using Hungary as an example, bank loans owed by Hungarian households and businesses were 20% lower in 2017 compared with 08 yet nominal GDP had grown by 40% over the period. So private sector indebtedness has just about half as a proportion of GDP in nine years. Being highly competitive with minimal indebtedness makes Eastern European economies very resilient to economic shocks. Yet perversely, investor interest is greatly reduced. Before 08, it was tended to be seen as an emerging market in terms of growth, but as developed market in terms of risk. But the experience of 08 to 13 unveiled a flaw in this thinking and cured many of their exuberance. At the same time, rising support for populist politicians pushed back against perceived EU encroachment and some steps to undermine the rule of law, freedom of the press and civil institutions has caused scepticism to replace long-term optimism. Meanwhile, the long-term structural appeal of these emerging economies has not diminished. Like most emerging markets, Eastern Europe offers relatively cheap labour and an abundance of unexploited opportunities to deploy capital. 
They're also endowed with other, endowed with other favourable structural characteristics that most emerging markets lack. Firstly, the population is highly educated, so they can compete in high-value-added sectors. Secondly, the EU structural investment funds provide an unwavering stream of capital to pay for infrastructure and development projects. And finally, as EU members or participants in the accession process, they must respect EU principles, treaties and laws. Oversight by EU institutions, including the EU judicial system. So essentially, they're importing strong, independent institutions to uphold the rule of law rather than having to develop their own. This is particularly important. The primary reason most emerging markets fail to emerge is their political, judicial and civic institutions being too weak to prevent elites from subverting the rule of law in pursuit of personal interests. So what's changed about Eastern Europe since 2008? Firstly, our concerns around erosion in competitiveness and rising indebtedness have been comprehensively addressed. And secondly, investor optimism has been replaced with scepticism, despite the fact that favourable structure characteristics remain intact. This has perked up our interest in the region. And that was a precursor to our trip in November, visiting companies and government institutions in Vienna, Bucharest, Warsaw and Budapest. So just looking at three topics, the consumer, the oil refineries and hydroelectric power to give you a sense of what's going on. Firstly, the consumers, and we found abundant evidence Eastern European households are in an excellent financial shape. Job security is very high, employment prospects are excellent, unemployment is at record lows throughout the region. More importantly, demand for labour is underpinned by competitiveness in the global labour market, not a temporary overheating of the domestic economy. Wages are rising about 5-10% to 10% a year, depending on the country. We mentioned Hungary resorting to enticing the older workers back into the workforce. Poland is keeping wage growth relatively low at 4-5%, but imported Ukrainians, 1.3 million of them, on short-term visas to achieve this. Local firms are locked in a struggle to stop workers from migrating west. The entire region is grappling with a drain of doctors and nurses as ageing populations in Western Europe compete for their skills. With minimal inflation and low taxes, the wage growth is flowing through to hip pockets. Most households own their homes outright, having received title when communism fell. So most people's monthly expenses do not include mortgage repayments, interest repayments or debt, or sorry, rent. Without mortgages, most households have very little debt and they have significant savings set aside. For example, 45% of property transactions in Hungary do not involve borrowing. These consumers are confident they have significant underutilised spending power and they're resilient to economic shocks. Higher interest rates are of little concern to households with little debt. As for a slowing economy, firms typically fire their least cost-effective workers first, meaning the highly competitive workers of Eastern Europe should be more insulated than most. The circumstances could not be more different from the tapped-out, heavily indebted consumers of the United States, United Kingdom or Australia. As they enjoy rising incomes and wealth, their demand for financial services, travel and consumer goods will grow. Markets for these goods and services in Europe, Eastern Europe remain small and fragmented and there is significant operational risk to carrying on business. Many large global firms have bigger fish to fry, leaving these markets for local or regional providers. Lufthansa is not rushing to connect Debrecen in eastern Hungary to the world. ASOS is not going to build distribution centres enabling same-day delivery in the Balkans when it has Western Europe and the United States to fight over. Allowing regional firms like low-cost airline Wizz Air and fashion retailer LPP to tap these increasingly wealthy yet neglected consumers largely unchallenged. 
Secondly, looking at oil refineries, in Eastern Europe's energy infrastructure was built during the communist era, designed to process oil imported from Russia. The region has complex refineries designed to process heavy, sour crudes from the Euro and Volga regions. They have considerable flexibility over the feedstock they can process and the mix of outputs they produce. This would be irrelevant if all feedstock types are readily available and demand growth was similar for all outputs, but it's not. Demand for mid-distillates like diesel and kerosene is growing more rapidly than demand for light fractions, gasoline and heavy products. Complex refineries have greater capacity to increase their mid-distillate yield than simple refineries. Eastern European refiners also have pipeline access to Russian heavy crude, well suited to producing such mid-distillate yields. But they can also process a range of different crudes if price disparities develop. And this will prove advantageous if supply growth continues to be dominated by light crude, i.e. US shale, condensate and natural gas liquids. The other interesting attributes of Eastern European refiners is they have extension distribution networks in the region, summing a barrier to competition from seaboard imports, with the hinterland being landlocked. As incomes grow, people drive more, fly more, buy more goods that need to be trucked around, they'll consume more plastics. These local refiners have a decent lock on the markets, tremendous flexibility in terms of inputs and outputs, and the capacity to direct less valuable light products to petrochemical manufacturing. And finally, the hydroelectric power generators. And the Danube flows through many countries in the region, an important source of hydroelectric power. Their plants are capital-intensive, requiring extensive civil works. But once built, they produce power from a free input, water. The design life of turbines is typically 40 years, but they can last for 90 years with proper maintenance. These are fantastic fixed-cost assets that are tremendously profitable when power prices rise. Eastern European electricity markets are connected to the synchronous grid of continental Europe. Pricing is deregulated and domestic power is often priced off German wholesale prices. While these have appreciated markedly in recent years, driven by rising coal and gas prices, a big rebound in carbon prices and slightly higher demand. Many countries in Europe are moving to phase out coal power plants, which will put pressure on gas prices and increase volatility in power prices as inflexible production is removed. Eastern Europe and Austria have some great hydroelectric power assets. There's also potential for pumped storage to help manage the intermittency problem that will only grow as the share of renewables in the generation mix increases. So to summarise, Eastern Europe has changed markedly since 2008. Investor sentiment has waned, but the problems of high indebtedness and eroding competitiveness have been comprehensively addressed. At the same time, the favourable structural characteristics that differentiate these countries from most emerging markets remain in place. This region's prospects look quite promising, though it's by no means without its challenges. We hope this quarter's update has been helpful. Thank you for listening.